to the Exam Study Expert Podcast, helping you hit the grades of your dreams at school, college, and university through the science of fast learning and lasting memory, the psychology of study productivity, and the secrets to great exam technique. And now your host, the Cambridge University trained psychologist who's dedicated his life to helping students study better and outsmart their exams, William Wadsworth. Hello and welcome back to the Exam Study Expert podcast. Today we're talking languages, tricks for memorising your vocab lists more easily, how to get your head around the grammar and some handy exam technique tips to make sure you get the highest possible grade in your exams. I'm joined by my friend Joe Heiner, who's not only taught at two prestigious British schools, but is also one of the most experienced Latin and Greek private tutors I've ever come across. He has over 5,000 hours of one-on-one tuition under his belt, from helping students here in the UK with major high school exams, such as their GCSEs or A-levels, to working with adult learners revisiting Latin just for fun. While Joe may be a classic specialist, many of his tips would apply equally to learning French, Spanish, German or any other modern language. So if you're ready to hear the secrets to better grades in Latin and other languages, let me introduce you to Joe and we'll dive right in. Joe, a very warm welcome to the Exam Study Expert podcast. Thank you very much, Will. Very pleased to be here. What was it that first got you interested in in languages and the study of Latin and Greek specifically? Uh, Well, I guess at school, I was fairly broad early on and enjoyed a lot of subjects. I was always a bit rubbish at history and geography, uh, but on the others, the humanities, and to an extent, the sciences, I I quite enjoyed them. As I went into sixth form, I had some really fantastic uh, Latin teaching, which was really inspirational. And that was the uh, driver for applying for classics at university, uh, having had such inspirational classics teaching myself. Um, So I did classics at Cambridge. Um, The course there is really good because it allows you to learn one of the languages from scratch. Um, And so it was a bit overwhelming at first for me personally, because I was on that intensive Greek course. The amount of work is huge. They expect you to get to A-level from naught in one year. So it was quite a rollercoaster of emotions, especially for that first year. But there's something really amazing about learning a language so intensively and being able to devote your entire self to that language. When I was doing my degree in the early years, uh, my sister was still up and coming doing her A-levels and uh, helped her a bit with Latin and really enjoyed uh, teaching her and realised how much I enjoyed passing on information to other people. Um, That gave me a bit of a seed that I might want to be a teacher. The teaching that I did after my PGC was intentionally part-time because I did want to explore a few different things and I wasn't entirely sure if full-time classroom teaching was for me. Uh, So I used that as an opportunity to experiment with a few things. Um, So alongside the classroom teaching I was doing, I was supervising for the University of Cambridge undergraduates in Latin and Greek, which I really enjoyed. And I was also private tutoring as well, uh, more school-age students and adult learners learning it for fun. So I, I, I was always kind of hedging my bets a little bit. Uh, and then it just happened that I naturally got drawn more to that one-to-one teaching model. Fantastic. So, I mean, you've, you've got a lot of experience under your belt now um, teaching uh, Latin and Greek. What are the sort of three or four main areas you'd, you'd focus on uh, with someone in order to prepare them to get them the you know, best possible results in, in any exams? Um, So the most important things definitely at sort of GCSE and A-level and other exams uh, would definitely be to focus, I suppose. You could split it into three or four sections. So you'd be looking at vocabulary, uh, you'd be looking at grammar, um, you'd be looking at set texts. 
And then I suppose you'd also be looking for techniques and tips for the exam room itself. Those would be sort of four main categories, I think. Makes sense. Okay. Um, well, why don't we start with vocabulary then? So I guess having a command of <laughs> what the words mean is a pretty fundamental part of, of any language. What are your kind of best pieces of advice that you give to, to students for how to, how to sort of tackle getting your vocabulary up to where it needs to be? Sure. So the main thing that you need to bear in mind is that what you don't want to be doing is just sitting in front of a piece of paper, just staring at these words and hoping they'll go in. You might pick up 20% of the words that way. It's not just not going to be an effective or fast way of learning these words. You certainly also don't want to waste time learning words that you already know, uh, which is a temptation that a lot of people fall into. So what they often do, especially during revision, is they'll go through the GCSE vocab list, which is a prescribed list of 600 or 700 words or so, um, and they'll start from the letter A and just start learning and going down. Then they'll maybe get a bit tired or want a break or something. Um, and then when they come back to it, they'll think, well, I might as well start again from the beginning, from letter A, because, you know, just to see what I know. And then what ends up happening is that over time, the first half of the vocab list ends up getting a lot more attention yeah. to the vocab list because you're always starting from the beginning and you're just looking again at words that you already know. So one way that you can counteract this is that making sure that sometimes you start an A and work forward and that sometimes you start at Z and work backwards and sometimes you work in the middle. Um, so do make sure that you're giving equal attention to all bits of the vocab list and do make sure that once you think you know words, you stop spending time looking at them or learning them because if they are in your long-term memory and I'm sure you can listen to other of Will's podcasts to uh, find out how you know how you can put things in your long-term memory how you can know when they're there but when you're reasonably satisfied that they're in your long-term memory blank them out of the list completely and only spend your time uh, you know physically scratch them out uh, or make your own list uh, on the computer which is quite a fun thing to do and quite a good use of time just of the words that you don't know, and then you can have the satisfaction of deleting them out of the document as, as you know them, and you get a satisfyingly smaller list as time goes on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, the, the thing I'd say from a sort of memory perspective of testing whether you know it is, can you remember it if you haven't looked at it for, for a little while? So, you know, if you look, last looked at it five minutes ago and you can remember it, maybe that's not quite good enough. Maybe you need to wait a day um, and check that you can remember it tomorrow as well um, from, from cold. Exactly. And just to incorporate that then into the vocab list thing, what you could do is if you're typing it, you could just use strike through in Microsoft Word or similar software. That way it's like saying, I think I know this one, but until you know that you can recall it a week or even a month later, you might not want to take the step of actually deleting it, but you can just have it there in strike through. Yeah, no, it's really cool. When you sort of start to look at individual words, uh, any kind of tips and hints you give students for easing the, the absorption of that new word into your, into your memory? Definitely. Um, so the key here is even when you are learning individual words, uh, not necessarily to treat them as individual words and think about how they connect to other words. Uh, so if you're looking at Latin, for example, you could be thinking about how does that Latin word connect to words that I already know in English? Um, because you uh, that's assuming that you're a native English speaker or whatever your native language might be. Look for, for connections there uh, because you've got that an incredible resource bank of your own native language to draw on uh, when learning the new one. And it's all too easy to forget that it's there. And, and there are so many ways in which it can be used. So let's just start maybe by looking at um, one thing that you can do. So you can look at the letters in Latin um, that will then connect with a language that you already know. So for example, the letter I in Latin, uh, this is very much like the letter J in English. And a lot of the words that we take from Latin convert I into J. 
Um, so you might be familiar with the word yanua. Yanua means door. Um, and that gives us English words like janitor and even January, because January is a doorway into a new year. Nice. So as well as looking for those uh, words uh, in another language that are like the target word that you're trying to learn in Latin, for example, um, look at the actual letters and therefore that will then give you other keys into other words. So then when you come to learn the word udex, which means judge, you'll be like, well, that makes sense because it begins with an I. So that is J-U-D. So it would mean judge. Uh, or you might be learning the word juvenis uh, and you'll see it begins with I and you'll think juven something. OK, juvenile. Uh, juvenile, juvenis means young man. I can see how that would link. Nice. No, I like that. Should we look at a Greek example of that as well? Yeah, why not? Um, so in Greek, the equivalent of that would be if you were trying to learn the word hudord. Hudord means water. Um, and what we can know from that is that uh, the rough reading in Greek, which is like an H, uh, comes unsurprisingly into English as an H. Uh, the upsilon in Greek, which is the one that looks like a U, that comes into English as a Y. So it makes sense that hudord means water uh, because that's what gives us hydro uh, in English, the prefix hydro. And once you know that upsilon is a Y in English, it won't then be a surprise when you learn the Greek word hupo, uh, which means under, or the Greek word huper, which means above. That's what gives us those English words hypo and hyper, as in hypoactive, hyperactive, hypothermia, hyperthermia. So that's that. That would be a Greek example. Yeah, that's really cool. And you can sort of start to see how this would apply to other languages, not just learning um, Latin or Greek, but you know, I guess whatever language you're trying to learn, can you link some of those new words back to words in your in your own language? Absolutely. Fantastic. So it's it grammar is a word that that doesn't often put uh, thrill and excitement into the hearts of uh, many students, particularly I guess earlier on in their their language careers before they've de- developed a real passion for for the, for the subject. What would you say to to people in that uh, in that situation? So make sure that you're learning the grammar um, with the correct aim. Um, so you know, are you going to be having to do in your exam um, any? English into Latin, for example, if we're talking about Latin, uh, or are you going to be translating from Latin to English? So if you're doing GCSE Latin, there's going to be a tiny element of uh, English to Latin, but very little. So you want to make sure that you focus your grammar learning accordingly so that you're not wasting time learning in a way that doesn't make sense for you. Um, So if you're not going to have to do lots of English into Latin, then the main thing to make sure is that you know the grammar enough to be able to recognise those endings. You might not have to produce them uh, on the day itself in the exam. So don't learn them in that direction. Learn them so that when you see the ending EM, for example, you feel, okay, that's an accusative singular. Um, So that just comes down to a lot of practice and a lot of making sure that you're sort of practising in the direction that you're going to need. Yeah, yeah. So when you're talking about that practice, any particularly sort of fun ways you can can do the practice to to help bring things to life a little? Uh, Yeah, so if it's grammar in particular, um, there's a fantastic resource actually on the Eton website, uh, which was developed by Eton School, where you can actually kind of have quick fire grammar questions where they'll just throw randomised forms at you. It's really good having a computer do this. You can do it with a tutor or a teacher, but the tutor or the teacher might not randomise those endings quite as well as a computer can. Uh, It's a bit like one of those tennis ball shooters that, you know, kind of just chucks them out quick fire. And it's actually really fun because I think one of the things people find difficult with grammar and boring about grammar is they don't always see how it's useful or how it's relevant. So when you're learning it in isolation, it can be a bit demotivating because it's kind of, why am I doing this? But just having a time limit uh, or a set number of ones on a quick fire basis that you've got to get through gives it its own little purpose. So I do recommend that. That's That's a useful resource. Turning it into a game. 
turning into a game, absolutely. And one very, very simple thing, but actually it does just add, it just does make it a bit more interesting, um, is just timing yourself. Um, so yeah. if you are learning a table like Puala, why not put a time limit on it? Why, why not say, right, can I do it in a minute today? And then challenge yourself in a week's time. I need to be able to do that in 30 seconds. Funnily enough, it does actually, it does actually add an element of fun to it. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. I guess finally, any any thoughts on any sort of good ways to to sort of structure your 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 learning of grammar? I mean, there's th- there can be quite a lot to take in the different verb forms, different nouns, and so forth. Any uh, any kind of advice on how to how to break that challenge down in a way that helps it make sense for you? Definitely, um, it's definitely worth looking at which bits of grammar uh, or which other bits of grammar and trying to structure it in a way where one thing builds logically to the next thing. So in Latin, for example, it would make a lot of sense to start learning the noun endings first before you come on to learn things like adjective endings and pronoun endings. Because uh, once you know something like pula and something like service in nouns, that's instantly then giving you the key to two one two adjectives. So that's your bonus, bona, bonum kind of adjective bonus borrows from service and puella and bellum. So if you already have learned those first, you're going to find it much easier to learn bonus. Uh, and then when you come to learn your pronouns, like ipse, in the plural in particular, but also in bits of the singular, those are very much like 212 adjectives as well. So pronouns are a bit like adjectives and adjectives are a bit like nouns. So try and think about what builds naturally, because that, that could save you a lot of time in the long run, uh, rather than having to think about these as all separate tables. Look for the overlaps. Uh, in Greek, it would be a similar thing. You'd want to start with your definite article. That's your ho, he, to. As soon as you know that, uh, that's giving you the key to second declension and first declension nouns. As soon as you know that, that's helping you with sophos, the adjective sophos, the 212 adjective. And that's helping you with pronouns as well. So it's a similar sort of thing in both languages. What is a 212 adjective? So a 212 adjective is an adjective that in the masculine follows second declension nouns, in the feminine follows first declension nouns, and then again in the neuter follows second declension nouns. And declensions are just groups of nouns that all follow a similar kind of uh, ending rule, is that right? Exactly that. Yeah, my Latin's a little rusty and my Greek is non-existent, so I'll have to take your word for some of that. <laughs> I'm impressed by what you remember. <laughs> um should we um, talk a little bit about your your third area of um, study? So set set texts. Yes, absolutely. So for for someone that's relatively new to to studying classics, I, I guess first just just what it, what do we what do you mean by the the set texts? Uh, in Latin and in Greek at GCSE and at A level, you have this set text component, uh, which is different to the language component where you're translating something that you've never seen before. With the set text, you're translating something that you've already seen, uh, which sounds fantastic and sounds like, well, that should be very easy. Uh, But it is challenging because they do make the difficulty level of the language harder for these set texts to sort of compensate for that. And because they're setting some original Latin and some original ancient Greek, it's something that a real Roman wrote. And uh, that's fantastic. It means from a very early age, you're actually getting exposure to the end game, to to, to the reading of Latin literature. Um, And you have to learn about 300 lines uh, in each in each language for a prose text and about 300 lines in each language for a verse text. So not too huge, uh, but but uh, that's for GCSE. And then it gets a bit you have to learn a bit more for A level. Yes. Uh, but it, but it certainly certainly it can seem challenging. So it is worth approaching it sort of in quite a strategic way. So what kind of strategies would you would you suggest? Uh, so I can happily tell you, first of all, what strategy I wouldn't suggest. Uh, okay. What a lot of students fall into the trap of doing. It is tempting to think it's only 300 lines in the original language. That feels like a lot. But in my language, that feels quite 
little. So why don't I just learn the whole thing off by heart? Yeah, I'm going to stay quiet now because I think that might have been what I did. <laughs> cool. Well, it, you can be forgiven for thinking it. Uh, it is tempting. It is a very manageable amount. Well, it seems manageable to learn in English off by heart, 300 lines or so. Um, the problem with it is that if you don't recognise when you're in the exam board, uh, in the exam room, sorry, which bit of the text they've given you on the day, uh, because all you've done is looked at the English you could just spend the whole exam writing completely the wrong chunk out. Um, and that is a very w- real danger. Added to the fact that you 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 could just skip out a line because it just dropped out of your head and you would have no way of knowing. Um, so it's not the best way to do it. Equally, trying to translate it and understand the grammar and the vocab and everything in exactly the same level of detail that you would for one of your GCSE unseen translations um, is not a good idea either because it's unrealistic and you'd have to have a university degree in classics to properly understand the workings of the language for a set text because it's written in the original language. Um, So what you really want to do is achieve some sort of balance between the two where you're learning it by heart kind of uh, and you're understanding it kind of and, and the two kind of meet in the middle somewhere. So I think the best thing that you can do is be extremely familiar with the English, uh, read it a lot of times before the day so that it feels like second nature, um, but also look for minimum one or two Latin words in each sentence that, that you understand and that you can connect so that at the very least, when you get in the exam and you see the bit of the set text they've given in front of you there, you can go, OK, I know it must be that because you recognise the Latin enough to be able to place it. Um, so if you just underline two or three key pieces of vocab in each sentence that you understand, that will then act as your trigger to then be able to reel off that particular sentence. And then then you should never get lost. Makes sense. So that's probably a quite a good segue to talk about the uh, the final thing you, you had on your mind, which was when you're in the exam room itself, what are the sort of tips, techniques and strategies you can use to, to really make the most of the preparation, what you've done and make sure you get the, the marks you deserve on the day? Absolutely. Um, Well, I think there are probably two key pieces of advice on that uh, sort of in the exam room. Um, The first is don't forget to use the glossary. And the glossary is that list of vocab words at the bottom of your unseen translation of words that weren't on your vocab list and at all words that were on your vocab list, but they were a different meaning to the one that they mean in this particular passage. And it's extremely common and you know, it, it's completely understandable that you might forget about it completely yeah, in, in exam panic, or you might just get lulled into a false sense of security when you see a word that you think, oh, no, I know that from the vocab list. I don't know why they underlined that. But then actually, when you look, it's one or two letters different and it's not exactly the same word or it's the same word, but with a different meaning. So you have to be methodical every time you see an underlined word. Go and use the help. That's what it's there for. You should actually that's something that you should then check that you've done at the end, because it is possible that you forgot to do it in the moment. So go back and check. You can even uh, cross off the glossary each word as you check that you used that piece of help in the passage. The The other aspect of the glossary to bear in mind is it's a lot more than just telling you the vocab. It will for nouns, it will give you the nominative and the genitive of of the noun, and it will give you the gender. Uh, And these are very important to be able to figure out what case that noun is in, and therefore what job it's doing in the sentence, and also what adjectives might be describing that noun, because if you have the gender, that gives you a clue about what adjectives might match to it. With the verbs, they'll give you all the principal parts. That means they'll give you the present tense, the infinitive, the perfect, and the past participle passive. And it might not be that 
first one out of those four that you need. It might be number two, number three, or number four, depending on the form that it appeared in the passage. So don't forget to scan across the whole thing and use all of those principal parts, because that could act as the key to tell you what tense the verb is in uh, or uh, other related grammatical information. So yeah, making sure A, that you've used the glossary, but B, that you've used all of it and you've used the grammatical information in it, not just the vocabulary information. Mm-hmm. No, that's fantastic. I'm, I'm trying to remember back to my own uh, days taking a Latin GCSE exam age uh, 16. And I'm, I'm, I recall having something quite wacky about prancing ponies and uh, columns of fire. And it just did, the, the words in the glossary just made so little sense. It sounded, it sounded nonsensical. But, but that was correct. I mean, it was, it was a deliberately slightly nonsense. I think it was a fairy tale or a, a myth or something. Um, there was a temptation, which I I think some of my classmates fell into to kind of bend the advice that was given to come up with something that sounded a little less crazy but actually it was supposed to sound crazy you had to just stick with what you know in classics anything can happen yeah yeah cool Any, anything else on uh, on handling in the exam room well one thing um particularly useful for translations is going back and when you're checking not just running one overall check uh, which is the default that i think that most students have uh, but actually being disciplined enough to split your checking process into individual subchecks. So you should go back and you should do one checks just looking at noun endings. Um, so, you know, have I got my subjects and my objects the right, right way around? Just looking at verb endings, have I got my tenses right? And if you know that there's a particular tense that you often forget about, for a lot of students, it's the pluperfect. So they say Caesar jumped instead of Caesar had jumped, and they miss that it's just that one step back in the past. So if there's a particular tense that you know you personally often miss, Make sure you look for that tense and run an entire check just going through looking for that particular mistake. So it's about just just breaking it down and focusing on one thing at a time for the whole check and then coming back and doing another check for for the next thing. Absolutely. I mean, no one can carry everything, can check everything uh, Mm. and carry all of those things in their head at one time. And especially uh, with a complicated language like Latin or Greek, where there's a lot of different things that could go wrong, it's better not to run that risk. And if you are looking for a particular mistake, you are more likely to find it. Whereas if you're just thinking, "Mm, I just need to see if all of this is right, you probably fall into the same traps and be lulled into the same false sense of uh, security that you were the original time, because you're not changing your mindset at all. You're just repeating what you've already done. So you should go back, you should do a check for nouns, check for verbs, then you should do a check for common mistakes. And actually, you know, there's a lot of these in Latin. So for example, people confuse iter, a journey, with iterum again. And there are these words that look very similar to each other. There's a very good list of these commonly confusable words, actually, in the back of John, a lot of John Taylor's books. He's a you know, really good uh, classics course writer. Um, so if you've got one of his books, check the back of that. For, there's an appendix about commonly confused words. Go and check for all of those, because it's, it's very unusual not to fall into one of those traps at some point under exam pressure. Makes sense. And then I guess just finally, what does, what does great look like from an examiner's perspective? What are they, what are they really looking for? Um, So I think when it comes to translation, they're looking for accuracy. You don't have to get everything completely right to be able to get full marks, which is sometimes a comforting thing for students to hear. Um, The way that it's graded means that you are actually allowed one minor mistake per sentence uh, to be able to get full marks for that sentence. So you don't have to drive yourself completely mad, but they do reward accuracy. So try not to just, you know, go through the exam and see one word and translate it, do the next word, translate it without checking the endings, even if coming back to what you were saying earlier, Will, about when you're translating, the story doesn't seem to make sense. If the reverse is true, if you're going through the story and 
everything seems to make complete sense and there are no ponies or unicorns and it's just a very normal conversation in the Roman forum or something and it all seems to map out don't be tricked into not checking the endings just because what you've written down in the English seems to make sense as a grammatical sentence. You might have got the wrong end of the stick. You might have got things the wrong way around. Subject and object could be wrong, for example. So I think the, the most important thing is to make sure that you actually cross-check everything against the grammar, even, even when, you can, when you think you can translate it without using the grammar. And that should then help you meet the accuracy requirement that they're looking for in the translation. Fine. Okay, that that makes a lot of sense. I think that's that's really helpful. Thank you, thank you, Joe. Um, that's been that's been really excellent. One thing I I often ask at the end is um, if you could go back in time, meet your sixteen uh, year old self, and give him a piece of advice or two, be it about uh, you know approach to studies and academia or approach to to kind of life and careers more generally. Um, what would what would you use that moment to say? I'd probably go back and say there's no such thing as a stupid question in learning and in education. And I think, um, you know, I've been on the receiving end of this. And I think almost everyone has at some point in their life uh, where they're made to feel like a particular gap in their knowledge, be it a small one or a big one. It might not be that someone says you're stupid for not knowing this, but you might be made to feel that way. And I think what I've really learned over the time since I was 16 is that everyone has these gaps in their knowledge um, and everybody has these areas within a subject that they're stronger at, areas that they're weaker at. And it's the right of no human being to go and tell some other human being that the other person's gaps are more of a problem than the gaps that they have themselves. Um, So I think just getting rid of any of that kind of emotional baggage that goes with the learning and just embracing the fact that we all know relatively nothing compared to the amount of knowledge that there is out there in the world and just enjoying the ride as much as possible. I love it. Fantastic. If anyone did want to find out a bit more about uh, what you do um, and, and sort of look you up and possibly with a view to tutoring services in mind, um, what would uh, wh- what would be the best way to get in touch? Absolutely. So I run a company called Titanium Tutors. Um, you can Google us uh, or we're just titaniumtutors.co.uk. And uh, so we work with over a thousand tutors across the UK. Um, we have a lot based in London, um, but we do have tutors based uh, sort of other areas of the UK. And uh, we offer a sort of wide range of subjects uh, for all ages, you know, of the common ones, English, maths and science, but also a lot of the more niche ones as well. Um, so feel free to check us out if you think we can uh, be of use um, and yeah you can just uh, reach us on our website awesome joe thank you ever so much it's been brilliant thanks once again and uh, talk to you soon you're very welcome thanks so much will it's been a pleasure and thanks again joe you can find notes and links for this episode including the various books and resources that were mentioned including of course a link to joe's own website uh, titanium tutors you can find all of that in the show notes section of your podcast app or you can go online and look it up on our blog at www.examstudyexpert.com forward slash joe that's joe spelt j-o-e Fantastic. Well, look, do join me again next week when we'll be diving into the science of how to overcome procrastination, helping you get and stay motivated in your studies, making sure you give yourself the very best shot at the greys of your dreams. Now, that's one you can't afford to miss. I will look forward to seeing you then. And in the meantime, very best of luck with your studies. Thanks for listening to the Exam Study Expert Podcast. Remember to hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And please take a moment to write a review for our show in your podcast player.